Well, thanks for tuning in this morning. And uh, just to start off a few things that uh, Eric is doing fine. He's learning how to manage his numbers and recovery and uh, resting at home is going great. And then just so you know, is that even though you see, uh, whether it's Eric, Robert, or another pastor that's teaching, is that I don't, I don't think you get how much we miss you all. Um, you know, teaching to an empty sanctuary is a challenge, but at the same time, it's a joy because all these memories are flooding back with where everybody is sitting at throughout the sanctuary. And, and looking forward to the day when the restrictions are lifted of being at the front door, greeting everybody that's coming in. Uh, and just celebrating our time to be able to fellowship together as the body of Christ, particularly. As I was thinking about this morning, three words came into my mind. Uh, frustrated, floundering, and failure. And those aren't the three points of the sermon, don't worry. But that's what ran through my mind when I started to think of portions of my military career and a certain season during that time is there had been a new sergeant major that had come in and of, of course is that everybody tries to cooperate get along and I was trying to engage in that relationship I had her look at my packet before it went before a promotion board and all of these other things but no matter how much I tried it didn't work and it came down to the point that I really felt that I was made captive in a system where there was no promotion uh, there was no advancement in rank because of one person that was over me. And maybe you have memories like that as well. It could be a job that you were in, is that you really felt that it was limited. Uh, It could be a relationship, or it could even be in a geographic location where your job was or where your family had to live. And just a feeling imprisoned by the situation or by the people that were in that situation. Now that sounds all too familiar today, doesn't it? Is that we can all identify with this aspect of feeling captive to our situation. You know, with the protective measures that are put in place, it's almost like we feel imprisoned at times. You know, our movements are limited, our work is limited, and some of us, unfortunately, our groceries are limited. Ladies, you can't go get your hair and nails done if you want to do that. Moms are having to homeschool, and dads, you're helping with that as well. Uh, some of us may not be as good, but I, I found a trick is that my son's enrolled in wood shop for this semester, so I employed him with that, and there's a few photos that are up there. You can see how he's helping me uh, put cedar lining on a porch and learning how to do measurements and use the nail gun and those types of things. But we're stuck, aren't we? We have become captive to COVID-19. But what is your response in all of this? Is it frustration? Is it a, a sense of, of floundering financially or not knowing what to do? Is it, is it failure? That you're, you have a, a feeling of failure to such an extent that you're isolating yourself at home more than anything else. And I hope that the passage today does convey a message of encouragement and confidence of what you can do during this time. So please turn to... Jeremiah 29, a letter, a letter that is written to a captive audience. Let's pray. Father, we give this time to you and just ask that the power of your word would be uh, what speaks to our minds and hearts and that your Holy Spirit just uh, gives us the truth and the application for this. I intercede for any that are struggling right now with what's going on. 
And for those that might be directly affected by this, whether it's themselves or family or friends that have been infected by this virus, I pray for those that have lost loved ones as well. And may our eyes just turn to you because of what Jesus has done. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So the title of the message this morning is Grow Where You Are Planted. And we'll read the first four verses of Jeremiah 29. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive. To the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shephan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive. And I'm going to stop right there for now, just to give you the background, the context of this letter. And we know that Jeremiah was a prophet. Uh, But he was a prophet before the exile and captivity and during the exile and captivity. The first 28 chapters of Jeremiah is really a warning about these things. And it transitions to hope in chapter 29. When was this written? It was written after Jeconiah was taken captive around 597 BC. It's likely that the prophet Daniel was also taken captive during that time. And then who are these messengers? Elasa and Gemariah. Well, actually, their fathers were, were assistants to Josiah the king, a good king, uh, which was quite a few kings before Zedekiah. But the, evidently, they had delivered a letter for Zedekiah. And what I found in Second Chronicles 36, verse 11 through 14, it says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more, according to all the abominations of the nations, and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So, What might have happened is that, first of all, know that Babylon attacked Jerusalem three times and took three different imprisonments to uh, Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar did. And so uh, it's possible that there was one, and and that's when Nebuchadnezzar met Zedekiah, swear an oath by his own God. And then what happens is Zedekiah wants to rebel, and he might have sent a letter by the hands of, those, of them to Nebuchadnezzar saying, we're not going to listen to you anymore, basically. And that's the aspect of rebelling against King Nebuchadnezzar. Why is this important? Is because Elasa and Gemariah know how to get there. And it, it's not like they took planes, trains, or automobiles. It was strictly camels and horses and walking all the way from Jerusalem, all the way what's mo- now modern-day Iraq. Who is this letter written to? to the remainder of the priests, the prophets, and all the people that are there in Babylon. And the opening is what I want to focus on. It's just looking at that first sentence, the first phrases in, in the fourth verse. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. 
And it really struck me. And here's the question I want to ask is, are you listening to God? Now, it's almost a loaded question, isn't it? Because within our own culture is that we have a lot of spiritually attuned people. And you can have those conversations. But a lot of the time when you ask somebody or you talk to somebody about spiritual things is the very first thing that comes out of their mouth is, well, to me, it means this. And there may may be no thought of what the truth is, but it's strictly an emotional response. Maybe what's more important for us as believers, as Christians, is to ask, are we listening to the word? You know, God has given us a letter as well in this. Are we listening to his letter similar to are they listening to the letter that Jeremiah had sent because he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. Hebrews gives us some great admonition in this. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Give earnest heed to what the word is, so that you don't drift away as a ship without an anchor. In chapter 4, Verse 12 through 14, it speaks about how powerful God's word is. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So this, it's not simply black and red letters on a white page, but it's living and it's powerful. And so will you listen to God's word today? Will you listen to what we're going to go through, knowing that it's from him. As we begin to start in verse four, you notice that what he says, thus says the Lord God, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he's going to go on. But the whole point of this section is he's telling them to thrive in the trial that they are in to thrive in the trial. And, and the first thing is God is in control. God is the one who carried them away from Jerusalem to Babylon. You're like, what? Why would God make them go into captivity? Why would he cause a nation to come and take them, his people, into captivity? Well, there's a few things. Not all the kings were like King David whatsoever. Some of them were very wicked. In 2 Kings 23, verse 26, we read about one particular king. It says, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger was aroused against Judah. Now, it's referring to the reign of Josiah in the fact of how Josiah turned the tables on idolatry and perversion to worship God again. But the kings that were prior to them, one particularly, and it finishes by saying, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The punishment was brought upon the nation of Judah, particularly because of how evil he was and they became during his reign. Well, how bad was that? If you go back to 2 Kings 21, verses 1 through 9, you can read how bad this guy was. And I'll just summarize some of this. First of all, he was evil from the age of 12. Quite the opposite of Jesus, wasn't it? He rebuilt the high places, which were places of worship to false gods. He raised up altars from Baal. He made a wooden image. He worshiped all the host of heaven. Now, it's just not being a stargazer 
and reading the horoscope, it was really believing that there were supernatural powers that were outside of our universe, likely referring to fallen angels. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven. He built altars in the house of the Lord. So in, in the temple that Solomon had built, no longer was it solely to worship God. He brought in altars to worship inside the temple to false gods. The worst one, he made his son pass through the fire. If, if you've ever researched what this is, is, is typically it was the god Molech who might have had a bullhead and he would have his arm sticking out like this. And most of the time it was hollow. And in the bottom is a place that they would create a fire and make a very, very strong fire to, to make that image just turn red hot and glow. Then they would take their baby and place in the arms of that metal statue, that metal idol. And you can imagine what would happen. Those babies would die that they were offering in sacrifice to a false god. Horrible. He even set a carved image of Asherah in the house of the Lord. So a false god in the temple to God. But verse 9 really talks about how bad he was. It says, Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. This is referring back to when the Lord delivers them out of Egypt and is bringing them into the promised land. And from the time that uh, they went into Egypt to when they returned to the promised land was about 400 years. He gave those nations 400 years to repent before he brought the children of Israel into that land. Well, Manasseh had done so much evil and the degree of that evil was greater than those pagan nations that the children of Israel came in and conquered. So what does this have to do with our letter? There's two things, discipline and punishment. And knowing the difference between those two helps us understand why God does what he does. First of all, punishment. To provide a course of action to inflict pain, inhibit movement, or prevent freedoms possessed by innocent people. But disciple, I mean, discipline means to provide a course of action to correct erroneous actions or activity to true actions or activity. So this was punishment for individuals that were hard hearted and, and continued to promote evil. But yet this was discipline for a nation, the nation of Judah, to not forsake their God and to worship false gods. Why is this important? Well, what is happening today? We're reading about a captive people being taken into captivity by a nation. We ourselves are in captivity to an extent by limitations put upon us by our government. I can't tell you. I can't tell you if it's punishment. I can't tell you if it's discipline. I can't tell you any of those things. But what I can emphasize is it does matter what you are doing. We must start from a foundation that God's all-knowing and all-powerful. We can't give in to accusations that God is, God. why doesn't God fix this and go the wrong way? So he's given us some things and directions in this letter of how to thrive in trials. The first, God being in control, but look what he says in verse 5. Build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. He's telling them to be active. The Lord is sending this letter through Jeremiah to a captive people in a foreign nation saying, be active, build houses, have gardens. They were to provide protection for their family. They were to provide sustenance for families. 
They weren't leaving anytime soon. They needed to continue to do this. Now, we now can just say, well, we're, we're a stay-at-home order, and we can binge watch Netflix, get fat, dumb, and happy. You know, there's a joke going around about people putting on COVID-19, those types of things. Instead, we can make the decision to do something. And it might be the simplistic thing of getting up, and I'm getting up and getting dressed. I'm not going to be imprisoned by, by, by my pajamas. I'm still going to get up and get dressed just as if I was going to work or something else. It might be going through your house and cleaning. In fact, my wife, my wife has been doing that and dragging me with her and kicking and screaming. I went with her to the garage and we cleaned things out. Why are we carrying this around for 30 years that we're not using? Guys, don't worry. I didn't get rid of any tools, of course. But there was a lot of other things that we purged because we were just been dragging it around. So be active, do something. The next verse talks about relationships. Be relational, verse 6. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. Is that the whole purpose that he's telling them to be relational is because they weren't leaving. Can you imagine being in captivity and saying, no, we're not going to have any other relationships. We're not going to let our kids get married because we're going to return to the promised land soon. Well, that wasn't going to happen. The Lord is telling them, you're going to be here for a while. You need to still do these things. Be relational. For us, reach out. We take advantage that we were, we're here, you know, two to three to four times a week. We're used to seeing each other Wednesday night, Saturday night, Sunday mornings, Tuesday night Bible studies with men and women, whatever it might be, or, or in our, our uh, connect group. But we don't have that luxury now, do we? But it doesn't mean that we have to stop. Is make the phone call. Send the text. You know what? You got Skype. You got FaceTime. You can set up your own personal Zoom meeting. All of these things. In fact, one of my favorite things is a Zoom meeting. Is that on, uh, we have Tuesday night school of discipleship. We haven't stopped. Pastor Sean and Dr. Chad, they're still Zooming the class. If that's a word, Zooming. Zooming the class. You know, sharing their screen, showing their slides. And I'm there, and I'm watching all the students, and I'm making sure some of them are staying awake. I'm chatting and saying, hey, Adam, wake up, whatever it might be. Friday, I teach a Revelation Zoom Bible study, online Revelation Bible study, and it, it just gives me great joy in seeing the faces that are there. And just a point of fellowship, even though we can't physically gather, is we can spiritually gather. So reach out to someone. Look what he continues to say. It says, so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. You know, he was encouraging them in those, in those relationships so that they might not be diminished. And he's telling them to grow practically, that they would continue to have sons and daughters. So for us is to be productive, is not to give in to what's, what's happening, and, but to be productive in our lives, to not be diminished, but to grow, to, be, to increase. Can you imagine how heartbreaking it would be if we come together after the limitations are lifted and we're here and we have those conversations and one of the responses is, is I'm farther away from God than before the stay-at-home order started. Well, you have the time now to be productive. Press into your relationship with Jesus Christ, with God. During Rally Point, I'll share a few things about spiritual disciplines and these are things that keep us connected mentally, intellectually, okay? Nothing can sever us from the love of Christ, but there's practical things that we can do to focus on that relationship and to grow 
and not be diminished. Look in verse 7. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. This is sort of like mind-blowing. We, we need to like put on those uh, Israeli sandals right now. Because they've just suffered something in their hometown in Jerusalem, in Judah. They've been taken captive. Oh, and if you might not have been on the first one. You might have been on the third round of the captives, been taken all the way up and around into modern-day Iraq, and the Lord is writing a letter through Jeremiah, and the Lord says this, seek the peace of the city. This is the city where they're captive. Now, mind you, they're not in chains. They're not chained to a wall. They're not dragging around a ball and chain. A lot of times what the conquering nation would do is resettle the populace of the place they had conquered. They would take them back to their home country or disperse them throughout the different nations that they controlled and just re- and tell them, you have to live here now. Make it work. Some of the, one of the places you can read about this is the book of Esther. book of Esther is set in the time and Esther's in captivity and Mordecai is in captivity. Romans fifteen nineteen says, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. We're deliberately told to pursue peace, to edify one another. Here, those, the, uh, Jew, the children of Judah that are in captivity are told to seek the peace of the city, pray to the Lord for it, and in its peace you will have peace. Not only to have peace, but they were told to pray, to actively intercede on the behalf of their captors to God. In this turmoil of limitations that we're under, there's opinions flying everywhere, isn't there? All over Facebook, all over social media. And the thing that breaks my heart is Christians are losing their testimony. And they're losing their testimony in two ways. First of all, in fear or in fighting. And in, in fighting particularly because they are so concerned about their constitutional rights and the things that they've typed, the things that they've said will diminish any chance of them sharing the gospel in the future. If we looked at that without knowing the context of who they are, we would not know that they were a follower of Jesus. Folks, read it. I think it's, chapter, it's verse 25, chapter 3 of Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven. You can go to Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 11 and you can see we are not of this earth. We're sojourners, we're pilgrims. You can go to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're pilgrims and sojourners. Our eyes should be fixed on our true homeland, which is heaven. The second part is that they're so fearful that people have become so fearful is that they'll, they'll imprison themselves in greater isolation, withdrawing from society, withdrawing from any relationships. You know, in both of these, if you really think about it, I want you to think of how selfish these attitudes are. It's the exaltation of self and what we think. Is this a testimony to God? Is this being peaceful? Is this being prayerful? Think about those things. We've seen that God's in control, that we're to live our lives to the extent that we can We're to increase and not diminish, and we're supposed to live peacefully and prayerfully in the situation that we're in, just like he told 
the children of Judah when they were in captivity. What does he say next? Look at verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets, your diviners, who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you have you caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. The second point is to avoid deception. And he covers three particular things here, but to avoid deception. First of all is that there are false prophets. Do not let your prophets, your diviners, who are in your midst deceive you. And this is not the first time that Jeremiah has warned the people. He did it all the way back in, in chapter 14 of Jeremiah. And this was before they went into exile, before they were attacked by Nebuchadnezzar. But he was coming. And Jeremiah, through the, the, as the prophet of God, said, Hey, you're going to be taken captive. And it's going to be by this guy Nebuchadnezzar. And you need to submit yourself to that. And what happened is they didn't believe him. Because the false prophets came along. We're not going to be taken captive. None of this is going to happen. It's not going to happen. And it did. And those prophets didn't even survive to be put into captivity. But there were false prophets. There were false prophets where they were at now. Don't worry. God's going to deliver us really soon. We're only going to be here six months. We're only going to be here a year. It's not going to be that long. And he is saying, don't let them deceive you. We're to avoid false prophets as well, aren't we? You know what Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 1, but there were also false prophets among the people. This is likely an allusion to the exact same thing that I've been talking about, Jeremiah 14. Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destructions. These false prophets are everywhere. It's been happening. You can watch it on YouTube. They're trying to command the end of COVID-19. They're proclaiming and decreeing that they're blowing the breath of God so it'll blow away those things. I talk with people that are reading false teachers and they say, well, I'll just eat the meat and spit out the bones. But the problem is, is it's like a big old bone from Costco. There's no meat on it at all. He talks about dreams, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed. I don't think he was talking about the dreams we get from having pizza at 10 o'clock at night with ice cream. But these are also dreams that we can say, well, God's going to deliver us. God's going to do this. And it's our subconscious that's creating false realities and we're attributing it to God. You know, a, a funny thing is that my cousin texted me yesterday as I was finishing preparing this. And she's like, you won't believe the dream I had. I dreamed that you quit Rocky Mount Calvary and opened a hair salon. Well, I can tell you that's a false dream. It's not real. Dan's dues. Can you imagine hair salon? But what is the way that we can avoid deception? Or Before we go there, just remembering what he said is like, I did not send these people. So they're prophesying falsely in his name. Or telling dreams falsely in the Lord's name, which is blasphemy, because they're attributing something to God that's not from him and saying he did this, he said this. But the Lord is saying to them to assure them, I did not send them. So how are we supposed to know these false prophets, false teachers, these dreams? And there's mainly one way to avoid deception, and it's this, the word of God. If this is ingrained within us, the spirit will call to our memory the truth of it. 
So many people chase the good idea fairy of spirituality and won't read what's put in their hands, the very word of God. Christ spoke to those who had believed and and said in chapter 8, verse 32 of John, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And that's such a significant statement that even one of our government agencies uses it as a motto. So we've read about thriving in trial. We've read about avoiding deception. And there's only one point left in these last uh, verses, verses 10 through 14. What we've covered has been great, but it's sort of fruitless if we don't remember God's character of remembering who he is. So look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. And remembering God's character, we need to remember that he has a plan. You see again that he says, 70 years you're going to be there. And he was the one that had caused them to go there. But he gives them this plan of visiting them, performing his good word towards them, of causing them to return to the place of Jerusalem, to Judah. (coughs) You've heard the the phrase, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And he does. But that plan is to follow his plan. It's not to make up our own. And it's a very simple plan. And now it's time to drink water. So, this is the third time teaching, and I teach an hour and a half on Friday night, too. (coughs) So maybe if I get that raspy, low voice, they'll let me be on the worship team. Who knows? (laughs) Billy says no. But God's plan is a very simple plan. It's something that we can make so complicated that it imprisons us as well. His simple plan is to love him with everything you got from your nose to your toes, with every atom of your being. And the way that scripture says is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your spirit, with everything to love him. The second part of his plan is pretty simple too, is to love others. To love others. These two things, the the boiled down simplicity of God's plan, all other things fall under those two things. Now it doesn't seem as complicated, does it? but to remember that God has a plan. Look at verse 11, the favorite verse out of this chapter that everybody remembers. You go to Hobby Lobby and you get the plaque and you put it on your wall. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Everybody remembers this verse, but I want you to remember how we got here. You had Nebuchadnezzar come and fight against Jerusalem and Judah and take people captive and take them, rip them from their home, put them in the kingdom of Babylon, and they're captives there. And God gives them this letter and says, you're going to be in captivity 70 years, but then I'll visit you, perform my good word towards you, and cause you to return to this place. And the only way... I can encapsulate this verse is to say that God is love. If you look at what he says, he says, 
Know the thoughts I think toward you, and the thoughts that he thinks towards them, despite causing the captivity, is still peace, not evil, to give them a future and a hope. Folks, the same is with us. You need to remember God's character. You need to remember that he is love. And the same thing applies today is the way that God thinks towards his people. It's thoughts of peace. It's the future. And it's the hope. But our peace is found in Christ. Our future is going to be when we're with him. And the hope of the resurrection. These are the things that we need to write on our heart. God's love has been expressed greatly in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So awesome. You see it at football games, everything. People remember this. So great a love that he gave his son, that whoever believes. But 17 carries a, a great weight with it as well that should impress us. For God did not send his son in the world, to the world to condemn it. The whole point of Jesus' coming wasn't to condemn but to provide that, apti- at that uh, road of freedom from the captivity of this world. God's plan is Jesus. God's word is Jesus. The future is, is Jesus' return. Our hope of the resurrection of being with him. His love. So great a thing. Now look at verse 12. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. On the, on the heels of verse 11, that the thoughts I think towards you are good and they're not evil. They're thoughts of peace and a, and a future and a hope. What? It requires a response. So we have to respond to God's activity. And it's not just passive. It's action. Look, call upon me, go, pray to me, listen to you. I will listen to you. Seek me, you will find me. And you search for me with all of your heart. Is that we call out, we pray, we seek him with everything. We get on our faces before him in this crisis, asking for his intercession and what's going on. Do you know why people don't like the truth? One particular thing of why they don't like the truth is because now they have to do something. They might have to change their lives. They might have to change how they think. They might have to change decisions because now they know what the truth is. They have to respond. And even for us, it might be times that we don't know what to even respond with. We know we should pray, but the words just don't come. Is that we have somebody on our side. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In our weakness of not knowing what to pray, we have someone that intercedes for us. And can you imagine the Holy Spirit with great emotion to deliver the true message of what's in our heart to the Father in intercession? He also groaning with things that can't be understood. So it should cause us, knowing God's love, to call upon him, pray to him, and seek him with all our heart. But look at verse 14. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. 
Notice that God moves as people respond. Even in verse 12, he said that he would listen to their prayers. As you seek the Lord, he will move in your life. And sometimes we're like, well, I didn't see that one coming. But we know that it's God's will. If we look at these verses, it says he will be found. He's not hiding. And our temporary captivity seems significant right now. But I want you to to broaden your perspective. Is that the Lord is going to bring us from the captivity of this world. Is that he will gather us. He will bring us to a prepared place to realize that we're in captivity right now. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Again, Peter is using an allusion to scripture from Exodus of how he talked about the children of Israel, of that being us now. And why are we this chosen generation? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Just like we had read, is that he's going to bring us from captivity, gather you. He's called us out of this darkness into marvelous light. Jesus talks about himself preparing a place for us in John 14, verse 1 through 4. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Is that Christ comes back. He's taking us from the captivity of this world to the place he's prepared for us, to be with God, to return to who we're supposed to be with. So these last two subpoints also in God's activity points to humbled seeking and dependent deliverance. As we're to call out, pray, seek, but we're dependent upon God's deliverance in our lives. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to get through this, to be free from captivity, but prayerful, humble dependence upon God. And we'll find that he will move according to his purposes. Now, as we close, and I I want you to make this personal, because just like the title says, ask yourself that question. Are you growing where God has planted you during this time? We've seen how the children of uh, Judah were taken into captivity, and they're in captivity, and these things happen, and this letter goes to them. And thinking about today, are you frustrated? about all the limitations that's imposed upon us? Are you failing? Are you flustered with everything going on? We have to remember that God's in control. Our confidence is in him. To thrive in this trial, we need to avoid deception. We also need to remember God's character. These things that we've read in this letter is what's going to help us grow and there's one other verse that I want to remind you to think of. Am I growing where I'm planted? John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Without Jesus Christ, there's not going to be any growing in this trial. 
You might improve yourself physically, mentally, intellectually, but without Jesus Christ, spiritually, there's no growth. And just imagine, imagine if we all got this right. What would the church look like even though we can't gather together? Even though we can't come to this building, what would it look like? Maybe we should learn some lessons from our Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ who have been dealing with this for decades. Limitations by the government on worship even. What would it look like individually if we were all growing where we were planted? If we were all thriving in this trial? In this pandemic, we need to apply these biblical truths that we've read in this letter. Thrive in trial, avoid deception, remember God's character. To refer back to John 3.16, if you are watching online and don't know Jesus, just type in, I need Jesus, and one of the ministers or pastors will get with you and, and be able to chat with you about that particularly. But God loved and he gave, and he gave his son for you. Believer, if you've been frustrated, failing, floundering, and you're not growing where you're planted, ask for prayer right now. They'll be right there to pray with you. So are you growing? Are you growing where God has planted you? Let's pray. Father, we we come before you and we thank you for the power of your word and just the simplicity of actually knowing that you're here, you're here with us. This isn't making you confused and, and you don't know what to do, but that truly you are in control of all of this, that we may not understand it. So will you help us to thrive in trial by going through these things that we read about and applying them, that we would avoid false prophets, false teaching, that we would remember who you are and that your love would just impact us so much of loving others, of growing in our relationship with you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to minister to people the truth of your word, even as we close in worship and the, and the chat and live stream gets down, that they would share it even to people that they know. But may our eyes stay on you and what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.